For now, however, we shift our focus to the U.S.-Canada border, where fully vaccinated Canadians are now permitted to enter the United States. Abigail Bimmon from Global News quickly explains what you need to know regarding that. The Canada Border Services Agency is beefing up staff at crossings prepared for an influx of travellers when the rules change at 12.01 Monday morning. There could be you know, some impacts to the time it takes across the border and we'd invite people to be patient. If you're a Canadian or otherwise exempt from restrictions and you're fully vaccinated by a Health Canada approved jab, you'll be able to skip the hotel quarantine and the full 14-day quarantine, as well as the day eight test. You still need to provide proof of a negative PCR test and take another when you arrive. You have to enter the test result and proof of vaccination into a new version of the ArriveCan app, downloadable at 1201 as well. Given this new development, it has some people wondering, is this enough for cross-border families waiting on reunions? For that, we are now joined by Dr. David Edward Uwipoon, founder of Faces for Advocacy. And doctor, appreciate you giving us some time here today. David, it's fine. And thank you so much for your time today. You got it, David. Well, in that case, uh, let's get into this. You know, you see the new development regarding the border restrictions, fully vaccinated Canadians given the option to indeed get through the border pending that they pass those tests and they don't have any positives show up there. What kind of a reaction do you have when you see this development and think, well, there's still lots of family members, I'm sure, that uh, don't fall under these categories? There's a lot of cautious optimism here um, because the plan itself can be helpful to a number of people, but the requirements to actually go through it are pretty challenging realistically for a lot of families. So first off, for all of your listeners right now, if you have a foreign national family member who you want to reunite with, this does apply to you. You might hear a lot of different things, but the fact is I've independently confirmed it with both IRCC as well as health. Those Foreign national family members who are considered immediate and extended family members will be able to, if they have a Health Canada approved vaccination, come into Canada without the need for hotel quarantine or home quarantine. And that's a huge thing. But there are some things that are still going to block a lot of people. For example, uh, there's a 15-day minimum stay for foreign nationals who come to Canada. Now, that made sense last year because you got to come in, you got to do two weeks of quarantine, stay here for at least 15 days. But now that you have people who are actually exempt from the two-week quarantine because they're fully vaccinated, it doesn't make sense to hold them in Canada for two weeks. This is a problem for a lot of couples who simply don't have the finances to take two weeks off of work every month. Um, And for a lot of border cities where people are actually coming together over the weekend, we can do so safely. There's a better way. And then in addition to that, there's a little strange hiccup that Minister Haidu has actually addressed uh, in the weird direction. But if you are a fully vaccinated, say, set of parents and you have a toddler, the toddler can't get a vaccine, but the toddler has to, vac- has to quarantine for hmm. 14 days, meaning that the, uh, the parents or the family actually doesn't benefit from their vaccination. And I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that 100% of toddlers are not partying in the streets after the Habs win. I would assume not, although I guess it depends yeah. on how uh, enamored they are with that particular hockey team. Uh, Correct. But, you know, spreading code on the street when you're a baby <laughs> and still breastfeeding. Uh, David, uh, but, you know, when we take a look at that issue, you know, in the conversations that you've had with uh, individuals across this country who have those concerns, does it feel like that their voices are being heard within this matter? 
this is the largest problem. Uh, when the pandemic first began, families were emailing their MPs and they were not being heard. They're emailing our leadership. They were not heard. It took the force of an over 11,000 group of an organized advocacy movement led by a guy with bad hair in order to be heard. And this is a real issue because government should be accessible to people. And there are a lot of people, even right now, who who feel completely disenfranchised by the government, who feel unheard. Now, we were lucky. We were able to succeed because we were organized. But not every single group and every single person has that ability, has access to the internet, has the ability to maybe navigate um, the language requirements to contact their MP. And that's why the faces of advocacy exist. We advocate for those who cannot. And this is why we're saying all to all your listeners, if you want to help, if you want to help others, if you yourself are in need of help in, uh, in getting uh, across to the government, join us in the campaign at facesofadvocacy.com. And David, I know in the past you've mentioned, too, that these cross-border restrictions, uh, they can vary for so many different reasons. You know, it doesn't just have to be family members. It can be spouses, fiancés. Uh, it can be relationships that might have this divide due to LGBTQ plus uh, reasons. So this is yes. not just specific to one or a couple of different people. It's a very oh. wide ranging manner huge ranging matter. So a lot of you might be thinking, well, what's, what's, what's the issue? You should be able to come and just get married. Now, marriage for one is not accessible to a lot of people. In, uh, for, uh, for example, LGBTQ plus couples. Some people aren't necessarily uh, in that position where they can be publicly married. Some people don't get common law status because uh, they aren't allowed to get the landlord's permission because they are not allowed to uh, establish their uh, their domestic status in countries that it's not allowed to be together. Your sister, your grandparent, your adult children, until the faces of advocacy uh, got involved, they weren't allowed into Canada. Imagine you're in a worldwide pandemic. Who do you want uh, to be beside you? And a lot of the time it's your family. Very well said. He is Dr. David Edward Uipoon, founder of Faces for Advocacy. Uh, Appreciate you giving us some time and touching on this subject here today. Have a wonderful day. Faces of advocacy and hope to see you on the campaign. There you go. And uh, David, by the way, before we let you go, I, I think your hair is great. So don't beat yourself up too bad. <laughs> That's very nice of you. Have a wonderful day. All right, welcome back to the show. John Jang filling in for Jill Bennett. She is enjoying a very well-earned vacation. For now, we stay on the topic of the U.S.-Canada border. Given the new development, fully vaccinated Canadians able to get through and indeed get down to the United States pending certain conditions like no positive tests. It has to be within three days, things of that nature. But indeed, the restrictions slowly and, and just surely easing, lifting, And that's probably good news for a lot of different business owners sprinkled along uh, U.S. communities right by the border, places like Blaine and certainly places like Point Roberts. With that in mind, we welcome Brian Calder. He's the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Brian, appreciate you uh, giving us some time and welcome back to the show. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. Now, obviously, uh, you know, I hear a little bit of happiness in your voice. It seems like it's just been too long since we've had good news to share with Point Roberts. But this easing of restrictions does represent uh, a bit of hope there at the end of a long tunnel that's been the past 15 months for you and your team. Well, I, after 17 months, uh, I've not believed much of anything the government says. Mm-hmm. I want to see it, feel it and see it in action, and I don't mean that as one word, in action, I mean it in action and happening before I'm ever going to believe anything they do. We've had just one heck of a time, and it's a bureaucratic nightmare. 
for us, and it's unnecessary. We can safely, uh, with 85, actually in excess of 85% of us vaccinated, we're not a threat to anybody. But it's try and read the uh, stuff that the government's recent, well, any, any of the stuff the government's put out. Uh, half the time the apps don't work, you get robocalls. We've had guys here with and getting 10 robocalls a day out of eastern Canada saying, well, are you locked down and, and you're quarantining? And we go, we left here, we went to Bellingham, we didn't stop in Canada. Well, you're in Canada. Hmm. We say 98281 USA, check it out. And they pause for a while and they go, oh, you're in the United States. Yes, that's true. Now, why don't you put 98281 in your computer so when we do cross the border to go to Bellingham for essential services, oh, we can't do that. Hmm. So the calls continue. I mean, it's a nightmare. So um, I'm not that hopeful that um, I guess any movement we appreciate at this time, but uh, it's just unbelievably goofy. And, and to be fair, Brian, I mean, what you're saying, I'm sure, are thoughts uh, that are echoed by so many living in Point Roberts. Certainly, uh, the business owners, the small business owners there in Point Roberts who have had to deal with a, a, a severe decrease in business ever since those borders uh, closed last year. John, decrease is a mild word. 90% of our economy here is dependent on Canadians. We have nothing around us, as you know, except water, and that's nice, and a 49th parallel, which sometimes is not usually it's nice. Now it isn't, uh, because we're locked out. And so with it, uh, 1,600 of our homes here are Canadians. Uh, 70% of our firefighters come from Canada to train here prior to being hired in Canada because it's convenient for them, and we're very, very happy to have them. Um, and so, like I say, 75% of our property is owned by Canadians. Um, uh, uh, you know, 90% of our economy comes directly from the lower mainland Canada, not the USA. Uh, water comes from Canada. Our power comes from Canada. It, this is basically Canadian. It's just they weren't given the keys. That's a very good way to put it. With that in mind then, Brian, when you, when you express your frustration this way, are you, are you leveling frustration against both governments in the sense that uh, obviously the Canadian government has to play a role, but you are Point Roberts, you are part of the United States. Maybe there's a blame to go in both sides here. Oh, gosh, it, uh, the U.S. absolutely has done nothing for Point Roberts. Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not saying it's Canadians' fault at all. It's it's uh, there's a bit of uh, the Canadians should take a bit of interest. Fifty percent of us here, including me, are dual citizens mm-hmm. or Canadian and American passports. Um, so they should have some um, uh, affection for us and historically have. Um, but now it's a military mindset. It's punitive. It's hassle. It's bully. It's uh, threat, threaten incarceration, lockdown, fines, fees. It's not humanitarian based. And I would submit that the dog and cat rescue people treat their charges better than the citizens of Point Roberts have been treated by their government, which is USA. 
And Brian, finally, you know, when it comes to the long-term outlook of people that live in Point Roberts, I think you choose to live in Point Roberts because you love being in Point Roberts. But after the experience that has been over the past 17 months, like you detail, is there maybe some people who feel like maybe I don't want to be here any, any longer because it feels like this part of the country has been ignored. And of course, that can't feel very good. Well, you're right, John. Some have already left for employment because there's none here. And our our whole recovery uh, post-COVID is in question, uh, and it's going to be very, very slow. Like our marina is down from 850 boats to 181 boats. And are they coming back? Because that that was the Canadian contingent, those other 600 boats. And they found another home for them last summer. Are they coming back? If they're not, how many jobs are lost with that? How, what's the spin-off of those Canadians spending money here? It's huge, huge. So that'll be shrinking, and the old people like me, retired, are going to be expanding, and they will end up with an old uh, folks' home down here in the lovely, beautiful scenery, which it is. <laughs> but, you're, you're not mistaken. It is, of course, gorgeous out there in Point Roberts. You betcha, John. Yep. And, and Brian, you know, before we let you go, just final thoughts on uh, just the fact that at some point soon over the next several days and weeks, you know, hopefully there are going to be fully vaccinated Canadians able to cross the border into Point Roberts, helping out in any way, shape or form that they can and just helping the economy there. Oh, absolutely. And, and we've offered to vaccinate them here with, with Johnson & Johnson or Moderna. Uh, and the premier has back. Uh, kibosh that he won't let it happen why not hmm. i it doesn't make any sense to me we'll 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 vaccinate a thousand canadians with second but if they've had the first shot we'll do the second one right at the border said no our fire chief carlton offered to do it That's and we've been turned down why That's a question worth asking to the Premier yet again, because I I think we're still waiting on a specific answer for that. Uh, Brian, appreciate you giving us some time here this afternoon. That is Brian Calder, president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Thank you. Thank you, John. Good afternoon. John Jang filling in for Jill Bennett today. Hope you're enjoying a very lovely Monday up to this point. Now, I'm not sure about you, but over this past weekend, uh, went and ate dined in at a restaurant for the first time in a long time. I enjoyed a very delicious chicken tikka masala at a restaurant uh, down along Davie Street. Felt nice to be in there and see other patrons there as well. Some wearing masks, some not. I chose to keep my mask on until I got to the table, ordering and everything. It just felt nice to, again, enjoy these experiences, these small things that, for the most part of our lives, we've taken for granted. But now that BC has entered step three in its reopening plan, uh, let's uh, check in with Mark von Schelwitz, the Vice President of Western Canada for Restaurants Canada, on exactly how the first weekend went. Mark, appreciate you giving us some time here today. Uh, my pleasure, John. Pleasure to be here. Now, you know, I, I enjoyed a very great experience at a restaurant over the weekend. I'm sure many other uh, listeners of ours across the Lower Mainland also had similar experiences. Based on what you've seen and heard, Mark, how do you think the first weekend of BC Step 3 has gone? I think it's gone extremely well, actually. You know, uh, uh, summer is here, and I think restaurant operators are finally finally seeing some light at the end of the tunnel as a result of the pandemic. And uh, certainly, from what I've been hearing, uh, really appreciate British Columbians once again getting out to, to enjoy a safe, uh, enjoyable meal experience in their local restaurants. So, uh, so from that point of view, we're we're very very grateful, certainly, and and we're very grateful as well for all the supports all the governments have provided us to get this far. But 
Uh, survival still very uncertain for many restaurants, though. So I think that uh, that's an issue going forward. Absolutely. I mean, one thing that I was encouraged to see uh, was simply the fact that there were so many people out in the sun on patios uh, with their group of friends. Again, some choosing to wear masks, others not. But that brings us into the step three policies here, Mark, where uh, restaurants no longer are mandated to keep particular mask policies. So is it as easy as saying that each individual location can can determine uh, what they want to do with that particular rule? Exactly. I mean, we're a very diverse industry, John. So, I mean, there are some things that, uh, you know, you probably want to keep your mask mandate in place in certain environments and your staff as well with vaccination rates and others. Whereas others, if you're more focused outdoors, you may not uh, need that mask policy in place. So I know that uh, a lot of our members are coming up with all sorts of diverse ways to make sure that they're keeping their guests and their staff safe. And Mark, I'm wondering, you know, what concerns still are lingering there for the restaurant industry because we know it was not a very easy time throughout the pandemic. There were closures. There were so many setbacks here and there. It seems finally like we're all able to take a bit of a moment to realize things are getting better. It's improving, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done on many different fronts. So for restaurants right now, what is still the number one concern? Well, I guess, you know, after over 15 months of severe operating res- restrictions, restaurants are drowning in debt that they had to, cur- to incur just to keep their lights on over the last 15 months. So as much as they'd like to stay focused on welcoming back their guests and placing more orders with local farmers, creating more jobs for their communities, uh, it's just become a little bit more difficult. Uh, as of yesterday, the federal government's starting to wind down uh, these federal rent and wage subsidies. But what we're saying is, uh, you know, the the reality of the pandemic has, certainly hasn't been felt equally by all British Columbians. And we can't really talk about revival and recovery in the restaurant industry if we have many of these small restaurant owners uh, struggling to survive. And we've got nearly half of our food service establishments that continue to lose money every day during the pandemic. And they're facing a very long and difficult uh, road to recovery that's going to need at least a year to return to some semblance of normal. And for the paying customer, they'll see that impact right away because when they go to pay their bill, they might realize even if they've been going to the same restaurant for years, that all of a sudden prices had to go up as a result of these businesses needing to, again, deal with some of the expenses and costs that they currently have on their hands. Yeah, not only that, we've had that extra headwind now where we've got, uh, you know, inflation of about 5%. Certain commodities like beef have gone up by 20%. So, uh, you know, so there's a lot of headwinds as well as far as cost increases, labor cost increases as well. And I think what a lot of British Columbians don't realize is that, you know, 95% of every dollar we spend at a restaurant goes directly back to our communities. Because even during the best of times, we've got a profit margin of less than 5 percent. So no other sector keeps so little in profit and returns so much to the economy, where 95 percent of all of our revenue goes towards local jobs, purchases from Canadian farmers and food and beverage uh, producers, So uh, and also contributions to charities. So uh, it's, it's something, it's, a, it's a, uh, an industry that is really key to the survival of uh, and, and the return to normal as far as the economy is concerned. And we have to remember, according to the May uh, Labour Force Survey, uh, 60, almost two-thirds of jobs still uh, left to be filled, 571 across Canada, are from our industry. And that includes about 44,000 B.C. food service record, uh, workers who are still trying to get uh, back into to their jobs again. 
Uh, I mean, they're very eager to bring these jobs back, but first they have to survive. Right. And I was going to ask you about that next, because you mentioned the word labor earlier. And, you know, I'm just wondering, over the past few days since BC has entered its uh, step three of its reopening plan, has that maybe encouraged former servers or or kitchen staff or front of house staff to get back into working at restaurants? Or are you noticing that there's still a bit of a lull here where uh, all those workers that used to be such a massive part of the workforce, the labor force, uh, they've just gone and they realized, well, look, it's been such a tough 15, 16 months. Why would I want to deal with this anymore? Oh, no, and exactly. I think, you know, over the last 15 months, uh, you know, the hours haven't been regular. So, you know, I know a lot of our, our, our staff have looked elsewhere and found career opportunities elsewhere. And for some of them, it's just getting them back into that uh, career. But we have actually a labor um, supply and demand mismatch right now. It's going on where we have some places where we can't find workers, and then we have a surplus workers in other areas of the province. So, uh, it's not been that easy, but but I think you know, like you point out, it's a it's a great industry with a lot of flexible hours, gratuities, and and uh, certainly I think that as we get busier and, and hopefully we get busier, that we'll be able to uh, hire more and more of these people back, and and hopefully they'll be coming back into uh, into into the industry. But what we don't want to see happen is a, another second round of of uh, business closures and the layoffs that go mm. with them if our restaurateurs don't survive. And, and that's why we've asked the federal government uh, to postpone, you know, the, uh, the, the scale back of the important wage and rent subsidies, at least during the summer, but hopefully it's next uh, uh, spring. And we've asked for uh, uh, restaurateurs and all British Columbians to help us in that with uh, go to supportrestaurants.ca send a little postcard to Finance Minister Freeland and, and help us, uh, you know, uh, contribute to uh, the economy and, and uh, the recovery uh, by making sure that uh, restaurants survive and continue to uh, hire people back and, and contribute to the uh, the recovery of their community. Very well said, Mark. And before we let you go, have you heard anything about like incentive programs that employers might be considering? Uh, I only ask this because I noticed a couple of postings uh, online from business owners, uh, restaurant owners in Washington State, uh, places like Seattle, where they also have, of course, a shortage of staff. So one of the things that they're trying to do is be more competitive with uh, benefits. They make sure that the wage is, is a little bit higher than, of course, than just the minimum. They're trying to make sure it's a livable wage. Things of that nature to make it more, uh, I guess, attractive for those that might have had some experience in the industry, but decided over the past year and a bit that they don't want to work there anymore. You can still make it a little bit more appealing if you choose to increase some of the incentives. Absolutely. And I know there's a wide range of, of different benefit packages that restaurateurs are offering to, to get people back into the industry and get them working again. And, you know, we employ a lot of students, for example, mm-hmm. so some of them are offering some tuition help, uh, uh, you know, that there's a, a great variety of, of benefit programs that restaurateurs are, are doing. But you have to remember, they're still in a situation where we're a very labor-intense industry. So you have to keep those labor dollars in check as well. So uh, so it's a, it's a difficult balancing act right now, especially when you've got menu inflation coming in as well. 
And, you know, the biggest concern is that big debt hangover where I talk to a lot of members saying, gee, I don't know how many months I'm going to be able to survive, especially Mm. if I'm not getting back to those normal sales levels in order just to pay back that debt, which is going to take them a long time to do. So uh, so we're not out of the woods yet, but uh, certainly I think there's an optimistic feeling in the industry where, uh, you know, at least we're back to, uh, you know, not 100% normal, but we're getting back to close to normal operating conditions. So, So we certainly appreciate that. Seems like it's a fragile hope right now for the restaurant industry. Some good news indeed with step three, but uh, still a lot of work that needs to be done. He is Mark Von Schelwitz. He is the vice president of Western Canada for Restaurants Canada. Appreciate you giving us some time here today, sir. My pleasure, John. Good afternoon. John Jang here with you, filling in for Jill as she is on a very well-earned vacation. She'll be back with you in just a couple of weeks. Now, it has been several days since July 1st Canada Day, of course, where we saw protests taking place here at the Vancouver Art Gallery, a sea of orange shirts honoring Every Child Matters, of course, in light of the discoveries of unmarked graves at sites of former residential schools across the province and certainly across the country. Now, as the days turn into weeks, more discoveries, I'm sure, will be made as researchers continue to use their technology to check on other known former sites. But in terms of proceeding with these matters now in the courts, that becomes a very complicated issue, as our next guest can help explain. She is Sarah Lehman, uh, founder and lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group. And Sarah, welcome back. Appreciate you giving us some time here today. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, as you sort of detailed there in your column, uh, it seems like when we think about prosecuting uh, crimes at Indian residential schools in Canada, this seems like a monumental headache that I can't even begin to understand. Yes, absolutely. There are going to be a number of hurdles to proceeding in that particular manner. And I know that many community advocates and um, people all over Canada are calling for a criminal investigation into these very disturbing findings. But the practical reality of actually laying criminal charges might be a completely different uh, different issue. Right, because if, for example, somebody wants to hold the government accountable, fine, that makes sense, then you have to understand that any time that you are looking for a prosecutor, these are representatives of the Crown, a.k.a. the government. So you're asking the government to sue itself? I, I don't understand how that's supposed to work. That's right. So in the vast majority of criminal proceedings, but for, say, private prosecutions, which are extremely rare, we would have the government acting on behalf of the public and prosecuting a particular entity, whether that's an individual or a corporation, for example. And so here we would have an agent for the government, an agent for the Crown, prosecuting the government. So that's the first big hurdle that would have to be overcome if a government was to be charged in relation to this incident. Now, I know the word precedent means so much in, in, uh, in what you do in the field that you are. So is there any examples of this having been done before on any kind of level in the past? Nothing that I'm aware of. This would be completely unprecedented as far as I'm concerned. Right. And but here we are. I mean, people need to know that justice will be at least considered when you're talking about all of these unmarked graves across uh, the country and more, I'm sure, are still going to be discovered. With that in mind, you know, Sarah, I'm sure you you've you've been keeping updated with the story. We have seen Catholic churches across Canada now being vandalized, being targeted. Now, it's really difficult for somebody to go and say, well, why don't you sue the Catholic Church? But is there maybe some consideration? 
declaration that you can find representatives either from the Catholic Church or from the federal government to target specifically? Yeah, so again, that might be another avenue that could be possible. Of course, you know, corporations are legal persons Mm -hmm. as far as the law is concerned. So you could see criminal charges being laid against a corporation and even a nonprofit corporation like the Catholic Church. So that could be possible. But there's other hurdles to just simply naming parties to the proceedings here. We would also have to have an investigation that would prove that there was a real crime committed. Uh, We would have to have some other evidence besides just these graves, in my opinion. And securing that type of evidence would be, I imagine, extremely difficult due to the passage of time and also the non-cooperation of parties like the Catholic Church to this time. And in your understanding right now, you know, what efforts are there being done to make sure that these cases can start proceeding to a certain level? Because uh, it, maybe it, it exposes a flaw in the uh, legal system here in Canada if we we can't really think about getting justice on behalf of uh, all of those that, that were unfortunately part of those unmarked graves, is that if we can't hold the government responsible, then how can justice ever be served? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the the main things that we're hearing here from people who are very understandably upset about these discoveries. Um, It may be that we need to look to the international community to come in and to investigate this. Mm. Perhaps that international body would be better equipped and more appropriate in these circumstances. And that's particularly so as well, given the historical distrust between many Indigenous communities and the police. Because, again, if it was to be prosecuted and and investigated here in Canada, it would be the RCMP that would be building the case against whichever party is ultimately to be named. What kind of uh, influence and power does the International Criminal Court hold? Uh, Because, pardon me, but I, I, I don't really hear about this particular body very often. Yeah, and particularly not here in Canada either. Um, the International Criminal Court does have jurisdiction. I mean, they could come in if they, the case was referred to them and they accepted it uh, and they decided that they wanted to investigate it. It would likely still require uh, some cooperation uh, from domestic entities as well. Um, but again, I don't think, I can't think of any <laughs> circumstances mm-hmm. under which something like that has happened here in Canada. Right. And in terms of those that are seeking to build the case, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of individuals across Canada, our Indigenous peoples, that are probably looking at this and thinking, well, how can I get help? How can I find justice? How can I seek it for myself? You know, is it as easy as just maybe finding the lawyer that can maybe help them with this? Or is there one collective agency that's able to maybe just point them in the right direction? If it is indeed trying to get a hold of the International Criminal Court, you know, I'd have to imagine it's a little more uh, complicated than just looking them up on Google and giving them a phone call, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It is certainly a complicated process, but any of these criminal proceedings would be. Um, And I think it's important to have that wider discussion about what justice looks like. Mm. And perhaps justice is not just about laying criminal charges and having criminal accountability. I mean, that would be nice in a perfect world, but maybe there's other avenues 
for justice to happen here and for reconciliation to be possible. But that's, you know, the optimist in me may be speaking. Right. And, you know, Sarah, final question. How important would this be to create precedent moving forward, knowing that if there is a way to hold government responsible, uh, that those avenues are going to present themselves in a fashion that makes those that are maybe hoping to press those charges or seek justice satisfied with these results? Because there's no way we can undo the damage that was done in Canada's history, but we can at least try and make sure that Canada's future is set in the right way. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's monumentally important that justice be served here one way or the other. I'm just not convinced that it will be properly served using the criminal justice system, at least domestically. Uh, She is Sarah Lehman. She is the founder and lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group, helping us to explain how prosecuting crimes at Indian residential schools in this country pose indeed monumental legal challenges. Sarah, appreciate you giving us some time and your expertise here today. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back and good afternoon. John Jang filling in for Jill Bennett. She'll be back with you in just a couple of weeks. With that in mind, we're less than two weeks away from the beginning of the Tokyo Olympics, uh, technically 2020. Uh, That's what the marketing and advertising will still be centered on, 2020. Uh, But in less than two weeks from today, when Team Canada officially kicks off their Tokyo Olympic hopes, the men's national basketball team will not be there as they failed to qualify. They failed to beat the Czech Republic in a last-ditch tournament, basically on home turf in Victoria, really over the weekend. With that in mind, uh, let's welcome in our next guest. He is Howard Kelsey, a former member of the Canadian men's Olympic basketball team, representing this country twice in 1980 and again in 84. Howard, appreciate you giving us some time here today. Happy to help out. I'm actually just returning back from watching the semis and the finals in Victoria. Right, okay, then let's get right into it. Uh, You know, Canada losing in overtime to the Czech Republic was not the story that any one of us wanted to talk about. But here we are, Howard. It seems it's uh, not a great story at all. It's, it's, in fact, I would be so bold to say it's a quite a failure, a catastrophic failure from this national program. Uh, you needed to qualify. It was on home turf. It was in Victoria. You had some spectators there being able to cheer your team on. What went wrong? Um, I agree with you that it obviously wasn't what we wanted to have happen at all, but let me start off with the positives. Uh, The chairman of the board of basketball, Canada, Brian Coover, the CEO, Glenn Grunwald, the COO, Michael uh, Bartlett, and Clint Hamilton, the athletic director at UVic and the chair of the tournament, did a fantastic job organizing Mm -hmm. and delivering in excruciating circumstances. They are not responsible in any way for the fact that we didn't deliver on the court. Now, I've been a player in two. We're two for two in our era. Uh, and we're lacking since 2000. Uh, Jay Triano's team and Steve Nash was the last team to ever qualify for Canada. So this is not something new. 2012, 2016, and 2020, we're 0 for 3 with high-level NBA players. So the answer is, yes, we wanted to be there. And now we're going to have to do some serious soul-searching uh, the other part that I would throw in here is that the Czech team is actually good. It wasn't mm. that Canada was bad. The Czechs beat Rick Pitino's team yesterday. I watched it by over 30 points, which uh, Greece, uh, which is also a surprise. We only beat Greece by, by six in a very tight game as well. So no excuses. Uh, back to the drawing board. Focus on uh, Paris 2024. 
Right. I mean, you mentioned soul searching. What needs to be done to reinvigorate this program? Because the lack of recent success qualifying and failing to qualify really uh, shows us that there has got to be something inherently wrong because Canada has the second most amount of NBA players on any international roster behind, of course, Team USA. Totally agree with you. Now, there's a different school of thought here. One is people have to understand, and most people don't know or care much in our culture about FIBA. They follow the NBA in a mesmerizing form, so anybody with an NBA name is automatically the shiny object. Remember, we're playing FIBA basketball. There are two minutes less per quarter there. It's much more physical. Mm. In the NBA, you have much better athletes, but you touch them and it's a foul, whereas in FIBA, it's more of a rugby scrum halftime under the, under the rebounding. And if you were watching the game on Saturday at the tip, I was with Misty Thomas, who also was a captain of our 84 team, and Ron Pussy, who's a silver medalist for Canada in the student games. I go, before we tipped, I said, we're too small. Dwight Powell is an excellent player, but he, we were playing him at the five position, which is the bulky center. Mm-hmm. About a, This there center was 7-1, probably 280. I'll be generous that Dwight's 240 and 6'8". So they can just back him down and post him. He should be playing at the four, no disrespect to Nick Nurse. And I looked at our team and go, well, okay, if we're going to go small, because there's only two ways to play, small or large in basketball, if you want to play with the big guys up front, the big oak trees, well, then pack it down inside and, and basically back them down to the rim. We're going small. Well, if we're going small, then we have to full-court press and use our thoroughbreds, uh, such as Lugan Dortz, such as Andrew Wiggins, and the speed and quickness that we have, which we did not press until we got desperate in the last minute and a half. So, short answer, we have athletes. We were missing a few, mm-hmm. some by injury, some by contract negotiation, but we had a good enough team there to win. Uh, unfortunately, we did not, and the Czechs uh, played very well, not only against us, but they played very well against Greece. So they deserve to win. There's no excuse. Uh, but the end of the day is I'm a kind of basketball guy for life. Uh, the organization itself is moving forward well. We're getting tons of support. The success of the Raptors and Coach Nurse is fine. But we cannot get into situations where Team Canada does not qualify. That's right. It's happened way too long, and it's time to get whoever we have to get that knows how to win there. Now, we're missing Jamal Murray because of a legitimate excruciating knee injury. Hopefully, he will be back. There's a few other players. Kyle Wilcher's a stretch four. He was the leading scorer in the World Championships. Have to ask the question, if he scored 26 against the USA team, why was he not there? Mm. Okay, where were a few other players that we could have used. But, again, I'm not getting into coaching or picking players, but the Fair. other day is I am getting into we need Canada in the Olympics, and there's only one way to get there. Win a medal in the previous Olympics or qualify through the World Championships prior. Absolutely. And, Howard, you and I, we could fill an hour's worth of conversation about this, but I do appreciate you giving us some time here today to, again, just get some thoughts on as to what went wrong. Team Canada's uh, men's national basketball team, once again, failing to qualify for the Olympics. It's been simply too long since we've been able to say otherwise. Appreciate you giving us some time here today, sir. My pleasure. Go Canada.